All right. You ready for God's word? Um, yeah. So why don't you turn with me in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, and if you, if you really want to be bold and you're a professional Bible user, you can also turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. So 2 Corinthians 11 and Matthew chapter 13. And we've been in a series over the last few weeks that we called, does anybody know what we called the series? Fixated. You guys are doing great. We called it Fixated. And what we've really been talking about, it, and, and Paul expresses this concern to the church of Corinth. Remember, that was a church that he started, and he was there for about 18 months, and then he left, and they had some problems. And so 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians are all trying to work out those problems, and he has to pay a visit, like, I'm coming down there. And he even says, whether I come with love or a whip is up to you. And we talked about Sometimes you whip and sometimes you nay nay and and so um <laughs> That was terrible. I'm so glad my kids are not in this worship experience. They would have just walked out right there, like, Dad, please. Um, so anyways, um, but we talked about um, he, he finally, there's reconciliation. They had departed. That was the whole thing. They departed from sound teaching and from sound doctrine and kind of gotten carried away um, in, in some different teachings and things, and they were losing what, he, what his concern was. He said, I'm afraid you're losing just your simple devotion to Christ. And that's pretty much what he says, like your simple devotion to Christ. I'm concerned about that. And, and this is a concern I think as a pastor I have, I think as a person I have. I think in my own life, like I never want to lose just the simplicity. One version calls it the simplicity of devotion to Jesus, right? I, I don't want to lose that. And I think, how many, how many understand we live in a complicated world? Have y'all noticed this? Like there's things I try to do and they're like, oh, you know, we have an app, we have this, we have that. And, and, and it's like, why is this so complicated to do? You know, I just want bacon. You know what I'm saying? I just, I just, it's all I wanted. And, and so um, we live in a complicated world, but I don't, I don't want our relationship with God to be complicated. And I think sometimes religion and religiosity can make our relationship with God complicated, uh, competing factors and distractions, and that's kind of what we've been talking about, can make our relationship. It's like, how do we stay just fixed on Jesus, you know, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finish of our faith? And that's kind of what we've been talking about. And today, I want to give you like the, the, the most simple, because I don't have a ton of time, but I want to give you just the most simple thought that I think will actually help you. Um, as it pertains to, to, to our devotion, just simply being devoted to Jesus, simply being devoted to God. And so uh, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll read this verse together. It's kind of been our key verse, but it, this is what Paul voices to the Corinthians. He said, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, and we said that's, that word cunning there is sophisticated trickery, that your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And so there's Paul. He's like, hey, I have a concern. And for me, this is what I said. I, I have a concern too. I have a concern because uh, here's what I know, like I know about you. I know about church people. I know about pathway people. Here's what I know. They love Jesus, want to follow Jesus, want to serve Jesus. Um, and that's you know pretty easy to do in this room. But we only get to meet here once a week, really. And then we go out into the world. And in the world, it is loud and crazy. 
And there are so many competing factors. And there is the little God of the world, right? And, and he, gets, he can get us distracted. And we talked about some of the ways that he does that. Um, and he can get us fixated on the wrong things. And also, you know what? He can make you busy. You know, sometimes if the devil can't make you bad, he just makes you busy. You know, it's like he can make you busy. He can tire you out. He can wear you out. One of the number one reasons I, or one of the things I hear from people sometimes with great frequency, oh, Pastor, we meant to be there, but we were just too tired. And, and I totally get it because I get, believe it or not, I get tired. I don't know if y'all know this, Jesus get tired. Jesus was so tired, he was sleeping in a boat in a hurricane. That's tired. I'm going to tell you straight up, I'm not that tired. You put me a boat in a hurricane, I'm not going to sleep. I'll be praying, <laughs> you know, like, but Jesus was that, that tired. So Jesus knows what it is to be tired. We all know what it is to be tired. Um, and I think sometimes the enemy, if he can't make us busy, makes us tired. You know, I, there's a lot of things that he does. And this is Paul's concern. Sometimes he just gets us listening to the wrong things and focused on the wrong things. This is what Paul's saying. He's like, hey, I have this concern. And uh, I have this concern that you're going to lose your simple devotion to Christ. And I think as a pastor, I have that concern. So today, I actually want to give you what I think is primarily the secret. If you can keep this thing first, I think it helps you with your devotion to Christ. And so to do that, I'm going to use a one-verse parable that Jesus shares. So Matthew 13, it's a one-verse parable. In fact, uh, he does a one-verse parable, and then he follows it up with a two-verse parable. Uh, in Matthew chapter 13. And I want to give you this one verse parable. We're just going to look at it for a few minutes. And, and I think it's going to help. I'll explain that in just a minute. But Matthew 13 verse 44, he says this, and the kingdom of heaven is like treasure in a field. Come on, somebody, it's treasure in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought the field. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all that he had, and he bought the field. I call this message hidden treasure. Hidden treasure. Let's, um, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this time and your presence, for these people, for this moment, for the technology, for all the people who are watching. Um, God, we just thank you. And Holy Spirit, I pray right now you would speak. God, that, that every person that is listening in would hear your voice. Um, God, that we wouldn't miss this opportunity just to hear from you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. So the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in the field. Man finds it for the joy um, that it brings him, goes and sells all he has and buys the field. Um, if you were to take this verse and read commentaries, in fact, you could read a lot of commentaries on this verse. I don't even know how many commentaries I have, um, but I've read a lot of them. And... Um, Interesting enough, most people, if you ask them to explain this verse, or if I said, will you tell me what this verse means, most people will say, well, the man is us. The treasure um, is the kingdom of God. And when we find the treasure of the kingdom of God, then we'll go and give all that we have for the kingdom. And most commentaries, um, most commentaries would explain it that way. I'll put my cards on the table. Um, a lot of commentaries, you need to understand, are, are older, and so they're great information. Sometimes I don't know that they have a lot of inspiration. Um, sometimes we can get our heads so full that our heart gets empty. Um, 
And I'm not saying that they're bad. I read them. And there's a lot of wonderful commentaries. But um, I'm going to tell you why they're wrong. And it's pretty simple, really. Um, because most commentaries will tell you that, that when Jesus is telling this parable, he's talking, he's saying, hey, a man, that being us, finds the treasure of the kingdom and sells all that he has for the, for the treasure of the kingdom. I'll, I'll tell you why that's wrong. It's very simple. Number one, um, you, can, you can't find the kingdom. You don't find God, he finds you. Uh, number two, uh, you can't hide the kingdom. And number three, you sure can't buy the kingdom. And so when you think about it, just logically, what we know, I don't think any of you would disagree with those statements. You don't find the kingdom, right? That's why Jesus came. He came preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and he was saying, hey, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What he was actually saying, and I don't have time to teach it. I've taught another service or series or messages or whatever. What he's actually saying is there's a kingdom here that you can't see that you're not even aware of, and I came to tell you there's a kingdom here because you can't find it. That's what he's saying. And so repent means to change the way you think after. After what? Well, repentance always follows revelation. So Jesus is actually saying, I came to, un revelation means to unveil. So I came to help you see something you can't see, so you'll change the way you think. So what Jesus is actually saying is, you can't find the kingdom. I brought it, and I'm trying to show you where it is. Right? Number one, you can't hide the kingdom. Hide it under a bushel? No. I mean, we sang about this, right? You know, like you don't hide the kingdom. Only you can prevent forest fire. You know what I'm saying? You can't, you hide the kingdom. And how many know you sure can't buy the kingdom? You sure can't buy the kingdom. There's a place in Acts where this Simon the sorcerer sees the power of God working in the life of the apostle Paul and wants to buy it. And Paul rebukes him. I mean, God has a way to deal with that. You don't buy the kingdom. So, so, so you, you don't find it, you don't hide it, you don't buy it. And since, since the man finds it and hides it and buys it, you can't be the man. And the treasure can't be the kingdom. So what's Jesus talking about? Well, let me help you with this. He's the man. Yes. You're the treasure. And the earth is the field. And said, he came, and finding a treasure in a field, he bought the field. I think what you need to understand that I think helps in our devotion to God is, and we're going to talk about it using this parable, is you need to understand how devoted God is to you. Like, to me, I think this is, this is the secret, if you will of staying fixated on God, staying fixed on God, staying focused on God, of staying in pursuit of God, like you really genuinely need the, the understanding, the revelation, if you will, of how devoted God is to you. And I think this one verse parable tells us that. So three things we're going to take out of this parable. It's just going to talk for just a minute, I promise. But number one, what this parable tells me is how God sees me. This, this parable tells me how God sees me. Let, let me show you this. Um, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who finds treasure. Not a fixer-upper. A treasure. A man finds treasure. 
So this tells me how God actually sees me. I'll show you a couple other scriptures. It, it shows me how God actually sees you, right? God sees you as treasure. Look at this. Exodus 19.5 says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a, a special treasure to me above all people. You will be a... You need to understand that God does not see you as an obligation. God, God does not see you as a burden. God does not see you as a mess he has to clean up. God sees you as a treasure. In fact, Isaiah 45 verse 3 is kind of a cool text. It's a messianic text, meaning it is a text that is revealing the Messiah in the Old Testament to us. That's messianic text or messianic promises. We see them all throughout the Old Testament. But in Isaiah, it's, show, it's actually Isaiah is showing us a conversation. This is really cool. Between God the Father and God the Son. And this is what God the Father says to God the Son in Isaiah 45, verse 3. He says, I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you will know that I'm the Lord who call on your name. I'm the God of Israel. That's what he says. I will give you treasure of darkness and hidden riches. The kingdom of heaven is like a man finding treasure hidden. Isn't it so cool how the Bible interprets the Bible when you pay attention? Like if it's in the Old Testament, it's in the New, it's in the New, it's in the Old. But this is what I need you to understand. Listen, hear me, hear me when I say this. Um, God sees you as treasure. Now I want to go a step farther because I want to explain something to you. God saw you as treasure before you accepted him. Like, you need to understand, God called you treasure when you were a hot mess. When you were screwed up, jacked up, when you didn't even know to look for God, or when you didn't care about God, or when you were so busy messing your life up, you couldn't stop and think if God had a purpose for it. Has anybody else been there, or is it just me? But I don't know about you, but it helps me to understand that I am not an obligation to God, a mess that has to be cleaned up. I am not a burden to him, but yet God, while we were yet sinners, Christ died. While we were lost and while we were in our mess and while we were riddled with sin in our addictions or whatever it is, in our very worst, God saw us as treasure. You need to understand how God sees you. And you need to understand this, that your behavior doesn't change how he sees you. Amen. Isn't it crazy that I can sit here and tell you God sees you as treasure and God saw you as treasure before he ever cleaned you up, before he ever saved you, before you ever received him, while you were a mess, God saw you as treasure. But somehow we think that after we come to Christ, if we mess up, we're not treasure anymore. If we mess up, we're a burden and an obligation again. And it's because we don't understand the power of grace. We don't understand how good grace is. And we don't understand because of that, we don't understand how good God is. 
that God in his love and goodness said, no, your treasure. And then God saves us. And, and, and then after we're saved, God's still like your treasure. God does not get a new appraisal every time you make a mistake. Come on, somebody. That's good news for me. I don't want that guy coming out and saying, okay, I got to look at this again. You were doing great, but last Friday night, wow, we got to order a new appraisal. Not sure your treasure anymore. I just want you to understand that what makes you precious to God is not what you do, but who you are. That's what makes you precious. So, so it, tells me, it tells me how God sees me. Here's the second thing. It, it tells me how God values me. How God values you. That's, that's what it says. Because it says this. He, he went and sold all that he had to buy the treasure. Or to buy the field, actually. Can, can I just share something? I was talking with a friend of mine about this. And I put this in a relational context, and it's just so good because it's God's relationship with us. But you can put it in your relationship with other people. Um, he bought the field, and I was talking to a friend of mine. I'm like, you know, when, when you get into it, like for all my single people, when you get into a relationship, you can apply it this way. You buy the field for the treasure. So the person you're in love with or dating or you know, whatever, that's, that's the treasure, but they come with a field. They come with a family, right? They got a mama somewhere. <laughs> right? they, they may come with a particular job or they may. And, and here's the whole thing. You, you buy the field. The, the problem in relationships sometimes is we buy the treasure and then we don't understand the treasures in a field. And when we're making a decision on a relationship, you need to evaluate the field. And then you buy, the tre- you buy the field to get the treasure, and then you're okay with the field. Like, I'm okay with the in-laws because they were the field. <laughs> but isn't this great about what this says about God and this? That, he bought the field. Like, God bought all your crap. <laughs> like, right? If you're a hoarder, God bought all your stuff. <laughs> like, <laughs> he bought your bad attitude. He bought your proclivities and propensities. He bought your deficiencies. He bought all your baggage. He bought the field because you were worth it. Right? It tells me about how God values me. Like God looked at all my baggage and all my stuff, all my mistakes and all my failures, and he said, oh, man, I'll buy the whole field just to get you. Like this helps me. I don't know if this helps you, but this really helps me because I got a big field. <laughs> Anybody else got a big field? Like when God bought you, bless him, he bought a lot. Like he, <laughs> I got a big field. But it tells me that, that he sold all that he had. I mean, greater, greater love has no one than this. And he bought. Like he sold all. In other words, he gave up everything. Jesus. His life. Right? He didn't cut a check. He got on a cross. Right? 
and he bought the field. And it tells me about how much he values me because, and, and, and I want you to get this, because the value of something is determined by the price someone will pay for it. Right? Yes. A label doesn't determine value. Mm -mm. How it looks or what it's made of. or Those don't determine. What determines value? Do you remember when Tom Brady re retired for a few days? <laughs> Do y'all remember that? Y'all remember? Like, remember his the, the divisional NFC game and the Bucks are playing the, um, the, the Rams. And the Rams are like, man, they're winning. And then all of a sudden, they kind of start imploding just a little bit. And here comes, you know, the goat. And I'm not a huge Tom Brady fan, but you got to give the guy respect. I mean, he lives at the Super Bowl. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, has a house there or something. You know, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, deflated footballs and all, whatever it is. I don't know. Like, you know, um, any <laughs> so bad. Anyways. He will never see this, so it's okay. Um, <laughs> but respect. But anyways, remember, um, it's towards the end of the game. It's the last touchdown pass that Brady threw, which is like a 55-yard touchdown pa pass to Mike Evans, right? And looks like the Bucks are going to come back, you know, and, and then the Rams did outlast them. And Mike Evans catches the touchdown. He gets so excited, he throws the ball into the stands, and a guy catches it. Now, Mike Evans, what he didn't know in that moment that we all presumed a few days later was that that was going to be Brady's last touchdown pass. Do you remember this? Yeah, for 40 days. And then after he was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, he decided to come back and play football again. Anyway, <laughs> Anyways. and so Mike Evans throws the stand. Guy catches the football, and then it becomes theoretically, for 40 days, Brady's last touchdown pass football, right? So the guy decides to auction it. You guys remember this? He actually sells the football for $518,000. That was the value of the football. Not to me. No. It wasn't worth that. I might pay 50 bucks for it. You know what I'm saying? But I, it wasn't worth that to me. But to somebody, let's think about this. To somebody out there, that football was worth $518,000, which seems crazy to a lot of people. Does anybody else think that's crazy? Okay. If there's anybody in here and you're like, no, that's a pretty good deal. I want to talk to you because um, we're, we're building a campus. And... Uh, I will get you a football if you want to write a $518,000 check to build today, okay? I will help a brother out. I will help you out. I will call Tom Brady and try to get you a football if you want to. <laughs> it deflated all. I don't care. Uh, we'll get you one. Um, but that's what's crazy. Now, of course, the rest of the story is that after Brady unretired, <laughs> Uh, the, the sale was voided, and so now the football is worth nothing. <laughs> Imagine being the guy who thought you just had a half a million dollar football, and then Brady unretired. I promise you he's not wearing a Bucks jersey this, this year. <laughs> no, he's mad. Um, but here's the point. What determined? It, it, it was just it was a football, just a football. Not, not even $100 to buy one of these footballs. 
But someone was willing to pay $518,000 for that football. And what set the value wasn't the brand or the label or what it was made of. What set the value is what someone was willing to pay for it. What determines your value is not the life you've lived, good or bad. Not the good things you've done or the bad things you've done. What determines your value are not your wins and your losses or what you're made out of. And what determines your value is not the labels that have been put on your life, whether by you or somebody else. Because there was this, remember this one person in the Bible, her name was, her label was the woman at the well. And God, Jesus, but God, Jesus, right? Jesus actually says, I got to go out of my way to get to this lady. What determined her value is not the label. Listen, even good labels. Oh, he's a good guy. Oh, she's a great, a great, a great lady. Now, what determines your value is what someone is willing to pay for you. And what God's word tells us is that someone found you as treasure in the field and was willing to pay, listen to me very carefully, the highest price that has ever been paid for anything. And he was willing to pay that for you. Um, in fact, I, I want to I say something, and I'm going to give you a scripture. But to God, do you know what you're worth? You are worth the same as Jesus. To God, do you know what your value is? The same value as Jesus. In fact, it's in your Bible, John 17, 23. Jesus, in his prayer to the Father, says, I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world would know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Like, like this is how God values you. He loves you as much as Jesus, and he values you as much as Jesus. In fact, in fact, when you understand this parable, then you understand the next parable, because most people make the same mistake on the next parable. Because how many have ever heard it said, if you were the only one, God would have sent his son? Have you ever heard that? And how many of you, like me, have kind of questioned that, like, really? I mean, I don't know. Like, really? Like, I mean, I know I'm not the only one, because there's like... You know, nearly 8 billion people on the planet. But I'm just saying. Well, the next parable actually tells you that when you understand it. Because the next parable in Matthew 13, 45 says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value. How many did he find? Of great value. He went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Again, when you understand the first one, you understand that in this one, the merchant was Jesus. Yes. We're the pearls. Yes. And when it says when he found, he sold everything he had. I'm telling you this. If you were the only one, the way God values you individually is he assesses and appraises you, if you will, with the same value as Jesus. Because that's what he was willing to pay to get you. So it tells me how he sees me. It tells me how he values me. And it tells me what God did for me. 
It tells us what God did for you, what God did for, for me. And this is what he did. He came looking. <laughs> um, I used to love hearing people, and sometimes say, and I understand, I'm not, no, no way, like, trying to be disrespectful to people, but they'll say, you know, I found Jesus. I'm like, you didn't know where to look. You didn't know where to look for Jesus. You, you didn't find Jesus. Jesus has been looking for you long before you even knew to look for him. In fact, think about this. He's talking about the, 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 the cunning craftiness of the enemy and our devotion. Paul's talking about that, our devotion to God. And he ta- talks about how the enemy deceived Adam and Eve. And so go back to Genesis 3. And the enemy deceives Adam and Eve, right? And they eat of the apple, which most theologians don't believe is an apple, but we've just always heard that, so it works, right? Um, and so, <laughs> um, so he eats, they eat of the fruit, and the Bible says then they what? They go and hide themselves, <clears throat> right? And then it says, and then God comes looking for them. So in the very beginning, look at the dynamics. It wasn't like God was hiding and we found him. No, we were hiding and he found us. In fact, Jesus said it this way. He said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. That, that this tells me what, what God did for me because it tells me that God came looking for me and that God sold everything to buy. And remember what he said? He bought the field. This is so cool. Because a minute ago I said the field was like us because we're a treasure and we all have a field. But really, the truth is the field is the world. Jesus, I want you to understand this because this is great news for, for you, if you're, if you're saved today, like if you're born again, you've accepted Christ, it's great news. But if you haven't, it's even better news, probably, or at least the same. I don't know. That's theologically correct. But anyways, the, the point is that Jesus bought the world. In, in other words, he paid for the world. For God so loved the So God, Jesus, God, Jesus has paid for the sin of every person in the world. Every sin has been paid for. Not only past sin, every future sin. The sin you haven't thought about committing yet has been paid for. In fact, let me show you this verse. It's um, Hebrews 10, 12. Hebrews 10, 12 says, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. So again, Jesus, the man finding the treasure, this man is obviously Jesus, and he offered one sacrifice for how many sins? All sin. Jesus has paid to reconcile the sin of the world. He has paid for all sin. He has paid for the sins of the people who will not accept him. He's paid for all their sin. And he's paid for all the sins of the people who name his name, who called upon his name, who who have been born again. He's paid for all their sin. It's incredible that you, you just need to understand how good the grace of God, that if you mess up today, Jesus isn't dying again. If someone needs to be saved today, Jesus doesn't have to come down from heaven and go back to the cross again. No, one sacrifice for all sin, for all time. Jesus bought the field. He loved the field. And he's looking for the treasure. But he said, I'll take the whole field. And I'll pay for the whole field. And I'll pay for every sin. And I'll pay for every person. That whosoever would call on my name would be saved. Amen. 
And then I like this because it says, it says this, having offered one sacrifice for sin, he sat down. Yes. Now you need to understand what sitting down is all about when you're talking about a priest. See, um, the Old Testament priest never sat down. Do you know why they never sat down? Because their job was never over. Because sin was never done away with. Because Old Testament ministry sacrifices only covered sin. They only delayed judgment. They didn't wash it away. They covered it. And so sin was never washed away, taken away, dealt with in finality. And because their, their work, the best they could do is temporarily from year to year cover sin, they never sat down. So when the writer of Hebrews is writing to Hebrews, in other words, Hebrew people, who understand the ministry of the Old Testament, Old Covenant, be Old Covenant, be more accurate, Old Covenant priests, and they understand they never sat down. And he said, you need to understand this about our high priest. Because remember, the, the, book, the writer of Hebrews is talking about the great high priest and the new covenant. And it is better. And I mean, it's the whole theme of the book, right? And he is writing this to Hebrews. And he's saying, basically, his voice said, remember how they never sat down? He did. Why did he sit down? Because the work was finished. That's why he said, it is finished. When he said, it is finished, he meant, it is finished. Amen. I have paid. I have done everything. Um, this is what separates, I'm going to say Christianity, from every other religious offering. Every other religion. I don't think Christianity is a religion. By definition, it's not. But, and, and here's primarily why it's not. There was a uh, debate among theologians years ago, and they were debating what makes Christianity different from all the other religions of the world. And they're trying to figure it out. They want to put it in a sentence. And if you know who C.S. Lewis is, he's written a lot of books. Um, C.S. Lewis walked into this room and they said, hey, you know, C.S., what do you think? And he's like, this is easy. Grace. It's like, this is the easy one on what separates Christianity from every other religion. Grace. Here's what I mean by that. Every other religion is man's attempt to perform well enough to gain favor from a deity. Christianity is about a deity's love and him bestowing favor on man in spite of who we are and what we do and what we've done. So what separates Christianity, relationship with Jesus from everyone else is we don't do the work Jesus did. And we start from a finished work, whereas they're working towards a finish. Now, this is good news if you understand it. Because what this actually means is your performance doesn't change your position with God. That you work from, live from, enjoy a fixed position. In other words, you don't work for salvation, you work from salvation. We don't work towards a finish line, we start from a finish line. 
Meaning that when we say Jesus really paid it all, he really paid it all. In fact, it says, you know, Ephesians 2 says, it's for it's by grace that you've been saved through faith, not of works. Not, not that anyone should boast. It's a gift of God, right? And then it goes on to say, but you're his masterpiece, which he created good works that you would walk in. Here, here's what makes it different than every other religion. Every other religion says you got to do the work and find out at the end if you made it. Here's what, here's what Christianity says. God says, I loved you. You made it. Now work. Like, by grace you've been saved. Now walk in the works that I set out for you. But your good works... Listen, we need to decide... Listen, I know you can ethereally agree, mentally ascend to what I'm saying, but you need to understand. Like, you need to ask, your question, ask yourself this question. Like, Am I saved by grace or works? And if you're saved by grace, then it's grace. In fact, Romans 11, Paul says this kind of the culmination of some of the best teaching on grace that's in your Bible. Well, probably the best teaching of grace that's in your Bible. But Romans eleven six, he says, But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, you need to decide, is it grace or works? And if it's grace then it's, it's a gift. And if it's works, you better get at it. And the reason, I want you to think about this, he's talking to Christians. Because a lot of Christians believe, I'm saved by grace, but then I have to perform well enough to keep it. In fact, denominations will teach this, some. And they will teach that, oh, you, can, you lose your salvation based on your performance. Now, here's what, I want, here's what doesn't make sense to me. If my performance can't save me, then how could my performance sentence me? The same grace that saves me is the same grace that sustains me. It was Jesus in the beginning, and it will be Jesus in the end. And there is never a place for me to win. It is all his victory. It is all his glory. It is all his power. It is all his goodness. I want to read you a few scriptures when we're talking about it's Jesus. Watch this. Colossians 3.3 says, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. John 10.27, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Romans 8, 38, for I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height or depth or anything else in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1, 13, in, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Here's what he just said. He said this, you are, if you've come to faith in Christ, you are hidden with God, right? No one can take you from his hand. Nothing can separate you from his love. And you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit as the promised guarantee of all of it. That's what that says. 
it, this parable is incredible because when I understand how much God loves me, how much or how God sees me as treasure, how he values me the same as Jesus. And what I understand that God was willing to do in selling all that he had and buying this big messy field to get this treasure and mine this treasure out then it helps me understand. I don't know about you, but it helps me understand that my relationship with God, like when I think I'm working for my relationship with God, when I think I have to maintain and sustain my relationship with God, when, when, I'm, when I'm in that mentality and when some days I'm good and some days I'm bad and I think that changes my place with God and how God sees me and how God values me and would God still make the same decision today to save me that he did back? When, when all of that gets in my mind, I, I will lose that simple devotion. But when I understand what God has done, that Jesus came and, and God said, I see a treasure in a field. And Jesus saw, I saw a treasure in a field and I, I sold everything and bought this field and it is mine. Yes. Yes. Then I understand, man, God wants me. God loves me. God thinks I'm incredible whether I do or not. And for me, it's just easy to say, wow, God, if you're that devoted to me, and knowing that I'm hidden and I am held in your grace, then yeah, I'll live devoted to you. I'll live devoted to you. Um, so here's what we're going to do. Why don't you stand with me just for a minute because it'll make it easier. If you're, if you're in this room, we're going to pray in just a minute. But if you're in this room, um, or a parent or you, whoever, and you are being you are registered. You are know you know you're going to be baptized in water today. Um, then you can go ahead and kind of work your way out the back, and we have team out there just to help you get to wherever you're going. So we'll give you just a minute. Awesome. Now here's what I want to talk about with everyone else. So if they're if they're registered to be baptized, they've already it's already baptism. We we have a, a way of explaining that to everybody, so they are very clear on what's going on. Um, but I want to take just a moment and explain it to you because maybe you're in this room and maybe in just a minute you may feel like, I don't know, maybe I need to take that step. And if that's you, I just want you to know what that step means. So when the Bible talks about baptism, a couple of things. Number one, first of all, it's, it's a command, meaning it, it is, I'll give everybody just a minute to get settled in. So, Yeah. All right, now we're settled. All right, so when the Bible talks about baptism, number one is it talks about being in command, meaning it's something that we're supposed to do as we follow Jesus. It's really not an option. And what I mean by that, I've been asked as a pastor, do I have to be baptized to be saved? My question would be, if you're saved, why would you not be baptized? What is it about that? Because when we look at baptism in the Bible, it's very powerful. It is, number one, a lot of people say, well, it's, it's like a profession of our faith. And it is. Some people say, well, it's just saying it's, a, it's, a, it's an outward sign of an inward work. And it is. It's definitely all those things. In fact, in the, in the, in the, uh, in the New Testament, in the first century church, they didn't do altar calls. They did baptisms. They didn't do the bow your head, close your eyes raise your hand, repeat after me prayer. It was, if you want to follow Jesus, meet us at the river. That was literally how it was done. You, you can't find, and I'm not against how we do church, so don't get offended. You can't find a sinner's prayer in the New Testament. 
What you can find is baptism waters. And so you just have to understand that that's, that, like, it's a command. You need to understand the first thing Jesus did when he was ready to start his ministry was to be water baptized. Now, Jesus had nothing to repent for, but yet still wanted to be or chose to be, by example, baptized in water. So if it's, if it's something Jesus felt like was significant, it has to be significant for us. I think, though, what we sometimes miss sometimes in baptism is how extraordinarily powerful it is in that when the Bible starts talking about baptism, there's some typologies and phrases and symbols that it talks about. Um, Colossians, Paul calls it this. In fact, I think Colossians and Romans bears this out. But he talks about the circumcision of the heart. Now, we don't want to get all into circumcision. Most people kind of understand that. But what was he trying to say when it pertains to the heart? Well, what he was trying to say is, well, if it's the circumcision of the heart, this is a cutting away. So it's two things. It's a cutting away of flesh. And, it's an in, and, and by doing that, there's an increased sensitivity. So, so here's what he's saying, that when we go into the baptism waters, God does this incredible surgery on our heart where he cuts away. And, and yes, w- 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 the next thing is we'll talk about what stays in the water, but he cuts away this nature, this, uh, he cuts away our propensities. I mean, I, you know, it's not that we're going to come up perfect and we're never going to do anything wrong again, but no, what Paul is trying to explain is like, no, no, he's cutting away this flesh, this flesh that we war with. Like he, it's like being branded in our heart. And then it's given us this sensitivity toward God. So this is something powerful that happens that's really supernatural. It's not that we go underwater and we come up. It's no, God actually does something in our heart that brands us with a sensitivity to him and cutting away some of the old stuff, some of the calluses, like some of the harshness and the hardness of our hearts is actually changed and transformed and cut away as we go into the baptism. And then, and then what is baptism? It's a death, a burial, and a resurrection. And all those things are significant. Like, number one, we go into the water because there's some things in our life that need to die. Amen. Right? There's some desires that need to die. There's some thinking that needs to die. There's, there's some things that need to die. Like, this is what Christianity is. is I die to myself. I die to my old way of living. Like, I think a lot of, I think there are people sometimes that don't live successful Christian lives because they raise their hand and pray to prayer, but they never actually died. And it says, so we die. And then, and then it says this, and then we're buried. How many know there's some things we need to leave behind? Right? I think sometimes, I'll say this, but I think sometimes people don't go to the baptism water because they're not ready to bury things. Right? They're just not done with it yet. I'm just not quite done with that yet. Like, I, I don't want to leave that behind just yet. But listen, it is a powerful thing to leave. And here's why I say, sometimes we need to bury things before they bury us. And so it's a death, it's a burial, and then it's a resurrection. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us and gives life to our bodies. And we walk in this new creation, in this new nature, Right? Like we've been made partakers, Peter says, of a divine nature. So we walk in this newness of life. So, so baptism, yes, yeah, a command. And yes, it's a profession of our faith. Absolutely. But there is something powerful that happens in those waters. There is a cutting away and a sensitivity. And there's the, the death of some things and the burial of some things. And most importantly, there is a resurrection that happens. 
And so today, um, if you're in this room, I'm going to pray here in just a second. But in just a minute, we're going to be seated. But before we're seated, I want to give anybody an opportunity after we pray that if you want to be baptized, you can go. In fact, you can get up at any time and you can go at any time. We'll be seated here in a minute. But I just want us to pray. So will you bow your heads with me really quickly? And God, I just thank you so much for what today represents and for those, God, who are going to be baptized. And God, I just, I pray for those in the room. Lord, if there are any in the room right now who really need to be baptized, God, I, I'm trusting in your Holy Spirit to make that clear to them. God, maybe they need to, to bury some things. Maybe they, maybe they need to cut away some, some hardness of their heart be sensitive to you, God. Maybe, maybe some things need to die <clears throat> so that they can live for you. God, maybe today they just need to be resurrected in new life and empowered to live the life, God, you called and created them for. But Holy Spirit, I'm just trusting right now. You're in the room. They're in the room. And I pray that, that you would speak to their hearts if, if that's a step they need to take, if they need to do this today. With our heads bowed really quickly, I just want to ask you, if, if you're in the room today and you, maybe you need, you just need a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you don't know if you have one. Maybe it's not a good one. Maybe you prayed one time, went to church one time. But if I said, like, do you have an up-to-date, on-fire, passionate relationship with Jesus that is up, like, up-to-date, like, talking with him, he's talking with you. If I said that, you'd say, no, that's not where I'm at. Like, I don't know where I'm at. Or maybe you know, like, I'm away from God. If that's you, I just want to pray with you and I just want to give you space. Even if you're online, we want to pray with you as well. But that's you. No one's looking around, but you're like, hey, that's me. And I feel the Holy Spirit talking to me right now, Pastor, and I just need to make a decision. I want to follow Jesus fully. I want to know his love. I want to be devoted to him. If that's you, would you just slip your hand up and say, hey, that's me. Just wherever you're at, you can just shoot it up. And if you're online, raise it in your living room and just say, God, that's me. Awesome. Um, now I want to say this. If you're in this room and, and we're about to, to move into baptisms, but if you want to be baptized, I, w- I want to invite you at any moment just to leave and go out the back. We have team out there, um, but I want, I want you to go. They're ready to serve you. But if that's you and you say, you know what, that's me. In fact, we'll do it this way. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Let's do this. It's always, it just, I don't know, makes it a safe place. But if you're in the room right now and you're like, Pastor, I feel like maybe the Holy Spirit's speaking to me about being baptized. Would you just lift your hand? Just shoot it up. Say, hey, that's me. Okay, good deal. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. And if at any moment you feel like you need to be baptized in water or you want to raise your hand, whatever the case would be, but you didn't, and you just ease out the back. We have people that are there to serve you and we will make sure that you have an opportunity Um, We'd love to serve you in that way. So God, we just thank you so much for your goodness and your grace and your love. We celebrate with these who are being baptized today. God, we're going to worship now as we experience and see and witness, God, people passing from death to life by the power of your grace in Jesus' name.